Most of you know me and know my style of preaching pretty well, and you know that I tend to begin with a story or an illustration that is later going to tie into the main points of the sermon, but I'm going to do it differently this morning. Today, I just want to begin by reading the passage that we're going to be studying, that we're going to be looking at. So we have arrived at chapter 12 of Acts, and I'll be reading that chapter, or at least most of that chapter, verses 1 through verse 24. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angels told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had made a thorough search for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, 
wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a god, not a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. I remember hearing and being taught this story in Sunday school a number of times when I was a child. I actually have a vague memory of Jane Meacham sharing this story using a flannel graph back in the dark ages. I'm going to pause for a moment because in the early service, as soon as I said flannel graph, I saw Christopher Govier lean over to his mom and say, what's a flannel graph? And that immediately says something about what generation I'm from. So, kids, if you don't know what a flannel graph is, ask your parents later. Parents, if you don't know what a flannel graph is, it's probably because you weren't raised in Sunday school in an evangelical church, okay? Because these were the YouTube of the day. Um, flannel graph were, were these things um, just of 40 years ago. Anyway, Jane Meacham told this story using a flannel graph. And the emphasis was always on Peter's incredible, miraculous escape from prison. And we also, you know, we would chuckle about the servant girl who came to the door and leaves Peter standing there in the dark. But what I never before allowed to sink in was the amount of death and sorrow and tragedy that's present in the story. The chapter begins with Herod arresting Christians simply to persecute them. And then he executes James and at the end of the saga of Peter's imprisonment and escape, Herod executes 16 guards. And of course, as I read today, it ends with Herod's own gross, shocking death. So this is not a light, happy story. It's not entirely a joyful piece of history, especially for the early church. But the reason I believe that Luke wrote this account this way is to highlight the sovereignty of God through opposites. And those opposites today I'm calling dichotomies, okay? Those dichotomies mean two opposite sides. In this passage, Luke chronicles God's sovereignty through four dichotomies and one constant. And we'll be examining what those are. Now, the way I want to express those dichotomies is by using prepositions, different prepositions. Let me acknowledge something right now. Prepositions in English make no sense. Okay, I'm fully aware of that. For those of you who have had to learn English, meaning you didn't learn it as a native language, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If I'm allowed to embarrass you, Ismar, after the service, the early service, Ismar, the bass player said to me, that was one of the most freeing ser sermons I've ever heard because it freed me. I always thought I had the problem with um, I mean, English pronouns, but it's, I'm pronouns, sorry, English prepositions, but it's actually everybody. It is everybody. Why is it in English that we ride on the bus, but not in the bus? And why do we ride in the car, but not on the car? right? That's just one example. That's just one example. It makes no sense. And for those of you who have had to learn English as adults or as my, my sympathies. But nonetheless, we will be using four different prepositions to describe the relationship of God 
of his sovereignty to these dichotomies. So here's the first one. God's sovereignty revealed in, that's our preposition, God's sovereignty revealed in death and deliverance. The dichotomy of death and deliverance. When we imagine the sovereign power of God at work, we usually think of it in the context of something miraculous, uh, an astonishing miracle, an amazing show of strength. That's what we have here with Peter and his escape from prison. But that begs a very difficult question. What about James? James, the brother of John, a leader of the church, one of the original 12 disciples, one of the three disciples that were closest to Jesus, Peter, James, and John. He's a key witness to the resurrection. Why didn't God save him? Why didn't the angel come and set James free from prison in the same way that he set Peter free? Of course God's sovereignty is revealed in Peter's miracle. But then does that mean that God's sovereignty was not revealed in James' death? Luke wants to show us that the sovereignty and control of God is revealed equally in both. The execution of James wasn't outside God's plan, while Peter's escape from prison was in God's plan. Both were equally within his plan, his control, and his sovereignty. And that brings us to our second dichotomy. Sovereignty revealed through answered and unanswered prayer. One more time. God's sovereignty revealed through answered and unanswered prayer. Here's a confession. That point in and of itself is a little bit misleading because there's no such thing as unanswered prayer. The father hears the prayers of his children and he answers. What we mean when we say unanswered prayer is that the answer was no. That's how we interpret it. But no is a valid answer from God. And it reveals his sovereignty as much as a yes. And once again, Luke shows this dichotomy through the contrasting experiences of James and Peter. I know the text does not specifically say that the church prayed for James, but it is implied, and a little bit later I'll show you why that is. Because I want to ask you, this, this church in Jerusalem, a vibrant church, a living church full of the Holy Spirit, with strong leaders, an evangelistic church that is sending and going and teaching and preaching the gospel, do we imagine they would not have prayed earnestly for one of their leaders who was imprisoned? I think that's very unlikely. I think the church also prayed urgently for James, and that leaves us with a really difficult reality. God answered and responded to the prayers for James by saying no. But he responded to the prayers for Peter by saying Yes, I will rescue him. Sisters and brothers, both the answered and the unanswered prayers reveal the sovereignty of God. He's not limited to one or to the other. So, how should we pray? 
We should pray with faith and confidence and trust because Scripture tells us to. Jesus invites us to. And also gives us, Scripture gives us examples of times that God listened to human prayers and changed his course of action. Think back to Exodus. I know it's hard to remember all of those sermons from Exodus, but there's that time where God is so fed up with Israel and their sin and their idolatry that he says to Moses, I am going to destroy this people. I am removing my favor from them. I'm going to wipe them out and I'm going to start all over again with you. And in that context, Moses pleads with the Lord and begs him to spare Israel, to continue to enact his will through her, through Israel, and to continue with them as his chosen possession and chosen people. And God relents. That's the way the text says it. God relented upon Moses' prayer. So we should pray with faith and confidence and trust, but we must also pray with humility, realizing that we do not know best and that God's ways are far above our ways. Now, when it comes for praying for the miraculous, there are two extremes to which Christians, and that means us, to which we tend, either explicitly or implicitly. One extreme is that God will always answer the prayer with a miracle. If he doesn't, it's that I don't have enough faith. That's the problem. Okay, so that's one extreme. But the reality is that's a very hard extreme to live. Because if, we, if you believe that God will always answer a faithful prayer with a miracle, with whatever you ask for, then when he doesn't, it all falls back on you. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because what, what, what that actually states and affirms is that we are sovereign. We are the ones who make these results. If we just engender enough prayer and pray it with enough faith, then God is obligated to do whatever we ask him to do. So that's one extreme. But the other extreme can be just as destructive. And what is that? God doesn't do miracles anymore. That's this extreme. God only works through human channels. He only works through natural means. He does no miracles anymore. Miracles were only for, you know, the, the early church. Miracles were only for when Jesus was on earth and in the Old Testament. Now he doesn't do miracles anymore. And I've, I've shared this before, but I am living proof that God does still heal today, that he does still do miracles. I don't want to go into that whole story, but I was anointed with oil by the leaders of the church after being ill for five or six weeks with no doctor being able to say what was wrong with me, and two days later I was back in school. But see, these extremes, they're easier to accept because they put God in a box. And so we always know what to expect. But that denies faith. That denies trust. If I always know, if I can say God will always do this in this given situation, then I don't have to trust. I don't have to have faith. And it doesn't acknowledge that God is above me and beyond me and greater than I am. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever imagined, truly imagined, what it would be like if God answered every prayer for a miracle with a yes? What would that actually be like? 
what chaos would that create in the world? Because not everyone who's asking for a miracle, even Christians, are asking for the right motives or in the right way. Now again, I, I, am, I am going to mention a movie here and I am not recommending it. Okay? In my younger and foolisher days, I watched it. I would not recommend it. It's called Bruce Almighty. I've mentioned it to you before. It's, it's really worthless and not worth watching. But there's an interesting occurrence because the main character receives God's powers, okay? Because he's been so angry with God. In theory, God gives him all his powers and says, you can be God for a little while, but um, you can't mess with free will and you can't make someone love you. So um, this character begins to enjoy all of his power, and he uses it for selfish purposes. Then he starts hearing all these voices. All these voices just start coming into his head, and what you realize is that these are prayers, you know, something that maybe we don't think about, you know. So he's, he's a human. He has the powers of God, but all of a sudden he's starting to hear all these prayers, all these prayers, all these prayers, and they're overwhelming him. And then it's, it's a silly movie, but the way they, they, they do it in the movie is that all these prayers begin to come in by email, Okay, so he has all these emails and he's madly answering them, answering them all, answering them all, and he answers who knows how many, and he clicks send and he sits back and he says, oh, and then you see on the screen, you know, 10 million new emails or something like that that's come in. So, so he just, finally he just types yes to all and hits enter. And then you see the world descending into chaos because people are asking for selfish things, they're asking for different things. And the whole point of it is that there is no sovereign, good, guiding hand that is caring for the direction of the world. And so God's sovereignty is revealed equally in the no as in the yes. We've experienced this just now in COVID. Why is it, and it's hard, brothers and sisters, it's hard, I know that, but why is it that some people get COVID and never even have symptoms? Why is it that some get it and die? Why is it that some get it and have mild symptoms, they stay home, they're fine a week later, other people end up in ICU and intubated and have long-term bad side effects? I don't know. And why is it that the outcome for all of these people it could be that people have prayed equally fervently for all of them. We don't know. It's the sovereignty of God and his purposes. We've experienced that over the course of the last couple of years with two very dear members of our church, Caleb Hostetler and Cindy Rast, both of whom died. But I, I, there were many people praying fervently for their healing. And I don't believe that they're with Jesus today because of the lack of faith of those who were praying. God's sovereignty revealed in both answered and unanswered prayer. Our third dichotomy is that God's sovereignty is revealed in spite of, I'm cheating there a little bit by using part of the same preposition, sovereignty revealed in spite of doubt or belief, in spite of doubt or belief. There are at least two clear indications of doubt in this story. The first is Peter himself. He doesn't believe that what's happening is real. He thinks he's having a vision. And I can only imagine Peter coming to himself, standing on that street corner alone at night in ancient Jerusalem, you know, his cloak wrapped around him, and all of a sudden he's like, whoa, this was, this was real. 
God, you really did send your angel and set me free. And remember, this, this should be a bit of a comfort for us. Peter is still Peter, right? He's been redeemed. He's been transformed. He's still Peter. Remember Peter from before the crucifixion and the resurrection? The Peter who said some of the greatest things and then said some of the stupidest things, who at times showed great courage and at other times showed great cowardice. You know, only Peter would, would, would God go from, would Jesus go from one minute saying to him, Peter, you did not receive that from yourself, but from the Holy Spirit. And on that rock, I'm going to build my church to just seconds later saying, get behind me, Satan, to Peter. And so here we, Peter had already been released miraculously from prison. Remember when Peter and John were imprisoned earlier in Acts? An angel of the Lord came and took him out of prison. And the next morning they were preaching in the temple courts. So this shouldn't be a new experience for Peter, but he doubts. He thinks he's having a vision. Then there's another indication of doubt, and it's a little bit more humorous even. The church is gathered, earnestly praying for Peter, and when he knocks on the door, they don't believe he's there. Think about this slave girl, Rhoda. How frustrating that must have been. Peter's at the door. Peter's, be quiet. We're praying for Peter. You're disturbing us. Peter's at the door. He's alive. He's free. Peter's at the door. No, he isn't. You're dreaming. You're a silly girl. We're praying for Peter. Clear doubt. Now, why might that be? Why could it be that the members of the church that were gathered in Mary's home, why would they have doubted? what they heard from Rhoda. Well, my first suggestion is that God didn't answer when they prayed for James or God answered with a no. So the experience they had had with James would have already led them to expect that Peter would be executed as well. This is one of the places that I believe that we have this implication that the church had prayed earlier for James. They prayed for him. God did not answer with a yes. So they're praying for Peter. They're praying urgently and earnestly for him, but they don't, but they expect that he's still going to be executed. And here's the second one. Maybe they weren't praying for a miracle. Have you considered that? Because it doesn't say that the church was praying for his release. It just said they were praying for him. Maybe the church was praying for a good outcome, but one with an earthly explanation. And isn't this how we would normally pray as well? I mean, I'll be honest with you. If I had a friend that was unjustly imprisoned, I, my first thought wouldn't be to pray that an angel of the Lord would meet him in prison, would hit him in the side, would cause his chains to fall off, the doors open, the delegados not to see, the policemen all to be stunned, and for him to walk out in freedom. Right? So, Maybe the church was praying for, uh, for an answer, but with an earthly explanation that Peter's trial would go well, that Herod would release him, or that maybe the Sanhedrin would come and speak on Peter's behalf or something. Or perhaps, this would also be a valid prayer, maybe they were simply praying that Peter would have the courage and strength from the Holy Spirit to face what was coming. That would be a very valid prayer as well. We don't know for sure, but could it be that they were not praying for nor expecting God's miraculous answer? 
And then it's interesting that the one example of quick faith and immediate belief does not come from a high-ranking leader in the church, nor from an apostle, nor from a prophet or a prophetess. It comes from a servant girl. And the text says that Rhoda goes to the door. She doesn't even have to see Peter. She recognizes his voice. And that's enough for her. Of course, she does leave him standing out on the street, right, which is a little bit humorous, and uh, goes running back in, and Peter's still knocking, 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 knocking on the door, and she's trying to convince people, and I I don't know if Peter could hear what was going on inside, but I, I imagine by that time, Peter's not, he's pounding on the door, let me in, I'm about to be arrested again. But this faith and belief comes from a servant girl, an insignificant person from a worldly perspective. One who doesn't have position, doesn't have power, doesn't have wealth. And this is a theme we're seeing in Acts. Yes, God uses some of these high-profile people like Peter and John, Philip, and Saul and Barnabas. But over and over and over, we see God using what I called last week the no-names. The people who seem to have little earthly resources. God's using them to spread his gospel. Nonetheless, God's sovereignty is revealed in spite of the doubt and in the belief of this young servant girl, Rhoda. This should be an encouragement to us because we all doubt at times. If we're honest with ourselves, we all have moments of doubt. But I want to challenge you in that doubt. Because every time in doubt, we have a choice. We do have a choice in doubt of which direction we will move. So if we imagine that we're caught in the middle in doubt, and over here is the world, and over here is Christ. In that doubt, we do have the choice to use our doubt as an opportunity to step closer to Christ. To affirm our faith to affirm his truth, to affirm his word. We are not, when we doubt, we're not caught in, um, in a position in which we have no agency or no say. We do have agency, we do have say, and the challenge of doubt is to use that doubt to step toward Christ and not toward the world. In this, in this example, it's, it's a relief to know that Peter's doubt and the doubt of the broader church, and perhaps even their lack of faith, did not stop God from displaying his sovereignty and his power. God still released Peter from prison, even though for a while Peter doubted, and even though the faith of the church was in question. God's power revealed in spite of doubt and in, unbe- and in belief. That, that causes us to arrive. It brings us to our fourth and last dichotomy. It's God's sovereignty revealed over, over his servants and his opponents. Of course, we see the sovereignty and power of God at work in the church, in Peter, in Rhoda, in those who are praying for him. But then how can we read this passage and not address Herod? Herod is an evil man. He is a ruler insecure in his identity and in his power. And thus he acts in violent, capricious ways. 
As far as we know, he doesn't have anything personal against the church, but he still arrests some believers for the purpose of persecuting them. He executes James, apparently without a trial, and when he sees that this pleased the Jews, he arrests Peter. And do you see this insecurity in Herod? It's like he, he arrests James and he executes him and he's like, oh, 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 you like that? You like that? You like that? Oh, okay, okay, you like that? Just watch, just watch. Let me get Peter next. And he arrests Peter. Luke uses another term for the first time in Acts here and it highlights a little bit of the history that we've been talking about of the division between Jew and Gentile, but also how in the church there is no longer Jew nor Gentile. And the two rivers have reached their confluence and they're running now as one. Because you notice, up until this point in Acts, Luke has always addressed the opponents of the gospel in Jerusalem as the leaders or the religious leaders or the Jewish leaders. This is the first time where he just broadly says the Jews. When, when he saw, when Herod saw that this pleased the Jews, he then arrested Peter also. Uh, the point that, that Luke makes here is not that all the Jews were pleased with this. But even he is beginning to show us in his use of vocabulary that the church is not Jew or Gentile. The church is now other, and it embraces both. That uh, no, no longer does a Gentile have to become a Jew in order to come to Christ. That's done and finished. So back to Herod, he is capricious and cares nothing for justice, and he cold-heartedly executes these 16 guards. We, we could, I suppose, argue that if he had only executed the four who were on duty when Peter was released, we might maybe perhaps understand that, but he doesn't. He kills them all. And then Luke adds the account of Herod's death. Because he wants us to see that no one, no matter their position, title, or power, can stand against the sovereignty of God. Herod gives a speech before the people of Tyre and Sidon. See, Herod's kingdom was to the south of Tyre and Sidon. And apparently he had imposed some kind of economic sanctions on them because they, those regions depended on the northern Israel area to supply their food, and the food wasn't getting through. And so when he addresses these people in an attempt to flatter the king, they chant, you know, this is not the voice of a man, this is a voice of a God. And in his heart, Herod says, yes, yes, I am like a God. I deserve this adulation. And the text says at that very moment, because he did not give praise to God. And what that phrase means is he did not acknowledge to God that he was not a God and that the only God was God. God struck him down. Now, Josephus, the historian, actually gives us more, more detail and more description about this event. Josephus writes that Herod that day wore robes that were braided with silver. And so as he walked in the sunlight, he was shimmering and shining. 
And it, it's, it's an interesting, ironic contrast of the external beauty and the internal decay. Josephus also tells us that it took Herod five days to die. See, here what it says in the text is that God struck him down, he was eaten by worms, and he died, that apparently that eating by worms process took five days. And Herod was literally consumed from the inside out by some kind of worm or parasite. I think God makes a very clear statement there. I am sovereign. Herod, you are not. I am the king. You are not. There's no entity, no opponent, no king, no president, no antichrist that can stand against the sovereignty of God. God may allow them to exercise limited power for a time because it is in accordance with his will and plan. But it is always held in check and limited by God himself. God's sovereignty revealed over his servants, but also over his opponents. Now the constant. There's no dichotomy here. It's just a continued, consistent, inexorable advance. Verse 24 says, but the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Herod, the opponent of the gospel, the opponent of the church, dies, eaten by worms, over the word of God, what? It continues to spread and flourish. That is the constant that we see in this passage. Regardless of death, deliverance, answered or unanswered prayer, doubt or belief, through God's servants or over his opponents, the gospel continues to advance and the church continues to grow. This can be seen all through history until today. There is an, an inexorable, unstoppable growth of the word of God in his church. It may be more dramatic in certain regions of the globe at certain points in history, but it's a constant advance. The word of God is never retreating. And the way that Luke has ordered this passage is important. He's showing us that it is not about any one single individual. By the time he gets to the end of this chapter, he doesn't say it's because of Peter that the word of God is advancing. He doesn't say it's even because of Rhoda. It's not directly because of Herod either. The word of God advances. It's not about one single individual. It's not about James. It's not even about Peter. It's about his church, the body of Christ. And each of us are a member of that body. Within the sovereign will and power of God, we each have a part to play in the health and growth of his body, the church, and the advance of his gospel. His church is still growing, and his gospel is still spreading. And according to and under his sovereign power, nothing can stand against his church. Again, that's something he told Peter, the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. God's sovereignty revealed in, through, in spite of, and over. All for the advance of the gospel and the growth of his church and the magnification of his glory.